0: 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We took a look at the first half of this chapter last week. And as we continue our study in the New Testament church, we are going to take a couple of weeks to look at two ordinances that God has ordained for the church the Lord's Supper and baptism this week, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, so I thought it was appropriate that we take a look at what the Word of God says about the Lord's Supper together as we prepare our hearts for it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, we'll read through the end of the chapter. So if you'll follow along, we'll start at verse 17 in chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. The Bible says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. "'Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep.' For if we would not judge ourselves, I'm sorry, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Let's stop and take a minute of prayer, and then we'll look at our message this morning. Our Father God, we now look into your word together, and we need you to teach us. We need your spirit to guide us into all truth, as you promised us. Lord, as we study together this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and and as we celebrate it together, I pray that our focus would be on you, that we would understand the things that these represent your death, your blood that was shed for us, the new life that we have in you. And so, Lord, teach us this morning. I pray now that you would just remove the distractions from our minds, our hearts, our eyes, so that we can focus on the things that you're trying to teach us. Lord, use me now. I pray that you would give me strength of body and of spirit and of voice, that I might proclaim the truth from your word, that you might speak through me Then use me as your instrument so we might hear from you today and be challenged by your word. And most of all, in this time, we want to give you the praise and glory and honor for everything that's done. And so we ask that you would be with us now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we've been studying through the New Testament church for about, I don't know, nine months or so, it seems like. Um, Different aspects of it, and we have studied what the church is who is part of the church, how the members of that church should worship and function. We took some time to look at spiritual gifts and how we are to use those within the church. We recently looked at the leadership of the church and elders and deacons and how they're supposed to function and be chosen. And now we've come to this passage here in 1 Corinthians 11 that gives us at least one of the ordinances of the New Testament church, which is the Lord's Supper. And in the New Testament, there's only two ordinances, by the way, that God gives us that we are to practice in the New Testament church, the Lord's Supper, or communion, and baptism. Now, other churches, other denominations may have more, but these are the only two commanded by Christ to be practiced as a regular part of our worship. In the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus told his disciples, and it applies to us, he said, Go into all the world and teach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. So Christ commanded his disciples to baptize those who would believe. And then also he told his disciples at the the Last Supper that whenever they celebrated the Lord's Supper together, that they were to do it in remembrance of him. Now, there wasn't necessarily a direct command in Christ's words, but he said, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So there was an understanding that this was to continue on. It wasn't if you do it, it was when. So there's an absolute that Christ left with us that we are to celebrate and practice the Lord's Supper together, to remember him, to remember his death, and to remember what unifies us as a church in Christ. And so that's why we regularly, at least once a month, celebrate the Lord's Supper together to remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ. And So when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have Paul's exposition to the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper. And he doesn't actually spend a long time talking about the practice of the Lord's Supper specifically and what should be done in it. He just reminds them of Christ's words. And in verse 23, if you go down that far, he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. So Paul's sharing with them the things that God has given him directly as inspired from God to the church. And he says, I've received this from Christ. He's he's giving this instruction to the church as directly from the Lord. So this is not, again, Paul's opinion. This is given directly to us by God through the Apostle Paul. And he explains in the next several verses what communion is and how they should partake of it. In the verse 23, the second part, he says that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. So the first part of the communion or the, the Lord's Supper uh, participation is to take bread together. Now, I don't have time this morning. I could give you a, a great uh, background in this. I'll give you a very brief background that the bread was something that Israel partook of as part of the Passover feast. I'll explain a little bit more about the Last Supper in just a minute. And so Jesus is using the bread as, of the Passover to, to teach his disciples something and to institute this new practice for the church. But he says the bread represents his body. In verse 24 he says, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Now he shows the picture of his body being broken as he picks up the bread and breaks it. The Passover feast used unleavened bread, so many times it was very stiff. It wasn't soft and spongy like we're used to. It was very stiff bread, almost like a cracker, and he would break it. You couldn't cut it, you would break it apart, and that was the normal practice. They would break the bread, they would pass it around, and then they would share it together. So as they're sharing the bread at the Passover, Christ is saying, this bread represents my body, which is about to be broken. This is just before he is crucified that he gives this to his disciples and to the church. So he says, I want you to break this bread to eat it, and to remember as you eat it, my body, which was broken on the cross. Now, the disciples had no idea, really. They may have had some idea, but they had no idea at this point that Christ was about to go to the cross. He had told them many times he was going to die. In fact, he told them about, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And they're looking at the building of the temple and going, oh, how is he going to do that? Okay, but he was talking about his body. So he's given them many indications about his impending death and here he's literally days from his crucifixion and he's saying my body is about to be broken and I want you to partake of this bread to remember when you break it that my body was broken for you and look at what he says is my body is broken for you and then this do in remembrance of me. So we are to remember the broken body of Christ as we partake of the bread together. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. So I think beyond or including remembering the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, I think we need to remember, and Christ may have been teaching his disciples this, this message of he is the bread of life. And it is through him that we really gain spiritual sustenance. Now, in Bible study, we've been talking, or this this last week, we talked about the difference between the things that are unseen and the things that are seen. As Christians, we live by faith, by the things that are unseen. The unseen things are God, salvation, okay? Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, um, the, the promise of eternal life, all the things that we look forward to that we can't see. So the spiritual realm is the unseen. And Jesus is saying here, to sustain the unseen or the spiritual part of your life, you have to subsist in me. You have to find your sustenance in me. Okay? Jesus is the bread of life. And so as we partake of the bread together, we're reminded again, we can't survive without him. We wouldn't be reconciled to God without the breaking of his body on the cross. So this is the signification of the bread when he picked up the bread and said, this is my body. All of those things were in that statement. And those are the things we think about as we partake of the bread in the communion process. Then he goes on and he takes, in verse 25, he takes the cup. It says, after the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So he first says, My body's going to be broken. And then he takes the cup, which was also part of the Passover feast. And he says, This is my blood. I want you to drink it. And as you drink it, I want you to remember my blood that was spilled out for the remission of sins for many. Now the disciples again didn't know what he was talking about specifically because he hadn't been crucified. He hadn't been beaten. They haven't seen him bleed. I mean, as far as being put on a cross and suffering to this point. So they're probably trying to figure this out. But I'm sure when they gathered together at the day of Pentecost, they understood this then. But Jesus says, this juice or this wine, the fruit of the vine, represents my blood and as it is poured out, my blood will be poured out for you for the remission of sins. And he says at the end of verse 25, This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So by eating the bread and drinking together from the cup, the disciples and believers from that time on are signifying that their redemption is found in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We are unified by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, we are called by Paul. We are his body, right? We have become the body of Christ on this earth. As Christ went up into heaven, he took his body, his physical body with him, and he left his church on the earth. So we represent the body of Christ. And as we remember in partaking of the celebration of the communion, the elements, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that is what unifies us together. Without Christ's death on the cross, we would have nothing to keep us unified as a church. I mean, we could try to like each other, and we could try to get along, and we could try to have church dinners and do all this stuff. But without Christ, there's nothing that holds us together. In Colossians chapter 1, the Bible tells us that Christ is the one that holds everything together. In him, all things consist, and is so with the church. And so as we partake of the bread and the juice together in communion or in the Lord's Supper... We remember that we are united in him. Without him, we're nothing. We have nothing. But we also need to remember that Christ said this is the New Testament. In verse 25, he says this cup is the New Testament. It's not the Old Covenant. It's a New Covenant that Christ is establishing here. Now, up to this point, the Jews, and all the disciples were Jews, by the way, as well as many of the members of the early church, they went regularly to the temple to sacrifice animals. And the blood of those animals was sprinkled on the altar, and that signified an atonement for their sins. But they had to do that over and over and over throughout their lifetime because the blood of animals was not enough. It was a temporary, insufficient sacrifice to cover their sin but not remove it. And when Christ says, this is my blood, the New Testament He's saying, this is the beginning of a new covenant, a new promise. Your sins are no longer remitted through the blood of animals. Your sins now will be completely remitted through my blood. And so Christ became the perfect sacrifice. His blood became the substance of the atonement for our sins once and for all. And so there never needs to be another sacrifice after this. Now, here's one reason why Christians don't regularly celebrate the Passover. I'm not saying it's wrong to celebrate Passover. I'm just saying this is why we don't. Because Passover is a looking back at the deliverance of God of the Israelites from Egypt. Okay, And then every year, they would sacrifice that lamb. They would put the blood on the door. They would remember it was that blood that delivered them. But they had to keep sacrificing animals. And when Christ came, he fulfilled all of that. He finished that. And so from this point on, when Christ died on the cross and rose again the third day, there was no longer any need to be, to be sacrificing animals and putting that blood on the altar. Christ's blood was enough. It was the final and perfect sacrifice. And that's what we remember as far as the new covenant. That's what Christ says. We are to see. This is the new covenant as we, take, as, as we partake of the cup together the new covenant we're reminded of this new promise we have life we are saved our sins are remitted and forgiven through the blood of Christ which was sacrificed once for all so it took the place of those animal sacrifices so this is all Paul gives us about the process of communion it's not fancy it's not complicated it's just very simple we partake together we we thank the lord for these elements we thank the lord for the, for Jesus Christ obviously as our Savior, and then we partake together, the bread and the juice. And then in verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. This is not a continuous thing that will last forever. It will end when Christ comes to claim his church. It says, do this until I come. Because at that point, those who would practice it will be taken from the earth. Okay. So, there's not a lot here about communion or about the Lord's Supper. But the point that Paul's trying to make is as we partake, it's not just something we do, it's not just a ritual that we have to go through. It is a reminder of what unifies us, where we are bound together as a church in Christ. Without Him, we're nothing. In Him, we are everything that we are. Okay, So as a church, Christ is the center of it all, and in partaking of communion, we are reminded of that every time we partake. Now one point I want to make clear, and this is something that a lot of people may not understand. As we partake of the bread and juice, there is nothing special about the bread and juice. They are just bread and juice. There are denominations and churches that believe that as you partake, that the blood, I'm sorry, the the juice becomes literally the blood of Jesus, that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. Okay? This is called transubstantiation. It's not taught in Scripture. The Catholic Church teaches this. Now, here's the problem I see with this. If you believe that the the juice becomes the blood, the, the bread becomes the body of Christ, and every time you partake, you are re-crucifying Christ. You are re-breaking his body. You are pouring out his blood anew. It only had to be done once. Christ said, this is a reminder. We are to remember it. It didn't say, I'm gonna, this is going to become me. He was using a metaphor here when he held up the bread and when he held up the juice for the disciples. And he's saying, this represents what you're about to see in my life, the sacrifice that I'm about to give. So there's nothing in the practice of the Lord's Supper that saves us, that brings us more favor with God, that bestows more grace upon us, other than the fact that we are rejoicing together as the body of Christ, that we all have the same hope in him, and we are reminded of what brings us together in this body. Okay? That's the significance of this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't do anything special for us. Jesus said specifically, Do this in remembrance of him and the sacrifice that he gave. So it's a looking back. And as I've mentioned before, it's also a looking forward because he said, I will not eat of this vine, or, or sorry, eat, or drink of this vine again until I drink it with you in, when I come in my kingdom. He told the disciples that in Matthew. Uh, all of the gospels reference this. But we, we partake of the communion uh, celebration together until the rapture. And when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom on earth, then we will literally sit with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that will be the next time with his church and with his people Israel that Christ will drink of the vine again. The last time was at the Last Supper. Okay, So just so we understand, the Lord's Supper does not save you, it does not make you a better Christian, it does not impart some special grace to you. It is an ordinance that God has given us to help us and remind us know that we are unified in him, to remember the sacrifice that he gave. Now let me give you a little history of the Lord's Supper in the early church because how they practiced it was a little different than what we do today. The first time the Lord's Supper is mentioned After the Last Supper is an indirect reference to it in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Now, this is right after Pentecost. It talks about how the Holy Spirit came upon all the believers that were gathered in the upper room, and then they were speaking in tongues and proclaiming the goodness of God, and people were saved, and then Peter gets up and preaches, and as you get toward the end of chapter 2 in Acts, you have 3,000 people that are saved right away and are added to the church at Jerusalem. And it says they gathered together or they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayers. This reference to breaking bread is a reference to participating of the Lord's Supper. But it wasn't necessarily kind of like what we do here. Because in the early church, especially right after Pentecost, the church gathered daily. They were together every day for a little while anyway. The situation was that there were many people, many Jews and many other people who had gathered at Jerusalem for the Passover. They saw the miracle of Pentecost. They heard Peter's sermon. 3,000 were saved. And then for the next two chapters, we see many more were being saved and added to the church on a regular basis. So the church is growing enormously fast right away. And these people who have come from out of town, they can't go back. Because by accepting Jesus Christ, now they have abandoned their previous lifestyle. They've been ostracized by their families, and they can't go back. So many of them are stuck in Jerusalem with no place to go, no job, no money. And so now the church basically takes it upon themselves to take care of these new believers who have no substance. Now also in this situation, as people are getting saved, you have a mix. There's many poor people, there's many rich people. There's many slaves, actually, that are being saved. I mean, think about it. If you were in a position of slavery or indentured servanthood, and you heard this message of Jesus Christ and how he can free you from the bondage of sin, that word freedom would ring clear in your mind, and that would draw you in. And so there's a lot of slaves that are being saved. Now, what substance do slaves have? Nothing. Okay? Okay. One of the reasons many people were probably indentured slaves is because they were in debt, and so they ended up having to work off their debt to someone that they owed money to. But there were a lot of people that really had nothing, and that's why the church gathered together to help each other and take care of each other. If you keep reading in chapters 3 and 4, you'll read about how the church started to, people in the church started to sell their goods, and they brought the money to the church so that everybody would be taken care of. And you have this verse that says, And they had all things in common so that no one lacked. So they're all taking care of each other on a regular basis, and they're probably eating meals together. I don't know if the entire church gathered for every meal. That would be difficult because you're talking about you know, possibly 5,000 people in one place. But they were eating meals together. And their practice at that point is that whenever they ate a meal together, specifically the supper meal, they would, in that meal, celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus had left this with his disciples, and this has now been passed on to the church. And they wanted to remember Christ. They wanted to remember and keep fresh in their mind every day what unified them in the blood of Christ. And so as they would gather for meals, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper at these meals every single day. Now, that lasted for a little while, but eventually the people who lived in Jerusalem and had jobs had to go back to work, okay? Now, here we may answer a question that could be in the back of some of your minds for a long time. I know I had a question about this, and this may be the answer to it. Why do we, over history as a church gather together on Sunday morning and Sunday evening traditionally. okay, That's been the practice in many churches for many years. It's kind of faded off as of late. It's not because it was commanded. There's no commanded scripture for you to get together on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. You have to have church both times. Okay, It's not in the scripture. The best answer I can come up with is if you look at the early church, when things started to go back to normal life, People had to go back to work. Now, remember, the early church is mostly Jews. The only difference between saved Jews and unconverted Jews is that saved Jews are now claiming and believing in Christ as the promised Messiah. That's it. They worship the same God, they still read the same Bible because they both had the Old Testament to go by. That was the big difference. And so if you look at history, and if you look at Scripture, many people in the church, in the early church, continued to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. So that was their day of rest. That's what God says, right? Six days shall you labor, on the seventh you shall rest. That was their Sabbath, or Saturday. Now what do you do about Sunday? Well, the church wanted to gather together specifically on Sunday to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. And so in their economy, though, Sunday was a work day. They had to go to work six days. We didn't have a two-day weekend like we have. They had one day of rest, the Sabbath, and then they would go back to work on Sunday. There was nothing special except they were celebrating the Lord's resurrection on Sunday. And so what the early church did was they would gather together early in the morning to worship the Lord and celebrate together as the church Then they would go to work all day. Then in the evening after work, they would gather together and have an evening meal together and celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. And that became the regular practice of the church because everybody had to work on Sunday. There's your answer. okay? But that's what the early church pattern was. They would worship the Lord on Sunday morning in a worship service. They would gather together for a meal on Sunday evening after work and celebrate the Lord's Supper. So they're regularly gathering together to remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ as part of their evening meal. Now, that's what we read about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's the situation that is at hand here when Paul is writing to them. And he's saying when you gather together as a church, when you come together to worship and to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, this is what's happening. The problem is that in this practice, not just of celebrating the Lord's Supper, but in a lot of things in the Church of Corinth, there were divisions, there were problems, there were disagreements, there was anger back and forth. There were people fighting each other in the church as they gathered to worship. And here Paul's saying, look at verse uh, 17, he says, when you come together in his assembly, it's not helping anybody. He says, now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. He said, now when you come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to worship the Lord together as a church, it should be good for you. It should help you and build you up and encourage you. And he says, that's not what's happening. It's actually worse that you're getting together. And everybody walks away in a worse attitude and in a worse situation than they were before they came. So he says their gathering wasn't even, wasn't even profiting anybody. And in verse 18, look, he goes on and he says, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. So there's these divisions. This is disagreements. There's all kinds of problems in the church, and there's disagreements that are going back and forth. People don't agree. Well, you know, if you read and continue on, he talks about spiritual gifts and abuse of spiritual gifts, and everybody wanted to talk, and everybody wanted to speak in tongues, and everybody wanted to have a song, and everybody wanted to do this and that, and everybody wanted to be an elder and be up front. And he says, you've got chaos, all right? So he says, it's not helping you. You've got all these divisions that are dividing you as a church. And there's stupid little issues that if you just followed the scripture and looked at what God has taught us about how we are to follow Christ in love and how we are to love one another, all of this would be solved. You wouldn't have these problems. And so he says, there's divisions among you. And at the end, he says, I partly believe it. He's basically saying he either believes at least some of the reports that have been brought to him about the chaos that's happening in the Corinthian church, Or he's saying the reports that have been given to me are really bad, and I'm really hoping that it's not as bad as people are reporting to me. Okay? So he says there's problems. There's divisions in the the congregation. And he goes on in verse 19. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now, this is an interesting verse. He's not saying because there's divisions that... Well, if there's divisions, then there must be false teaching okay This word heresies here is actually doesn't mean false teaching. If you have any other uh, version other than the King James, what you probably see is the word factions okay it's It's another word for division or disagreement or difference of opinion or cliques groups that agree with themselves but not with each with other people okay so Paul says. There are factions among you, which causes disunion. And it's an interesting phrase when you put that in the context, because he says, there must be, in verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 19, for there must be also factions or heresies among you, that they which are approved may be manifest among you. What Paul's saying here is not, I guess I can conclude that there's divisions among you, based on everything I've heard. He's actually saying, if you look at the Greek... The word must means necessary. So what Paul's actually saying is, it is necessary that these divisions happen. And you think, well, that's strange. Why would Paul say that? Why is it necessary to have divisions in the church or disagreements in the church? Well, look what he says at the end of the verse. That they which are approved may be made manifest among you. He says, God uses these divisions. He doesn't want the divisions, but they happen, and he ordains them in order to single out those people who are truly following me in love within the congregation. If there's problems, that means there are people who are not following God. They're being selfish. They're being prideful. They want my way, and they don't care what, how it affects other people. And so Paul says these factions or these problems that have arisen actually highlight those people who are truly trying to walk in the love of the Lord and bring peace rather than cause these divisions. It also highlights the troublemakers. But he says these factions show who is approved by God. Those people who have been approved by God in their spirit, in their actions, who literally are the leaders representing the love of Christ in the church. And so God uses the divisions in the church, Paul says, to highlight those people who are truly following him. But it also highlights those people who are just there to cause problems and want their own way. And that's what verse 19 says. And then he explains the problem in verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, we read at the beginning of this passage, I'm I'm sorry, if you continue on reading, he says, For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat, to drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So, what was happening, as I mentioned, in every church, there were poor people, there were rich people, there were slaves, there were free people. The church of Corinth continued to practice basically what had happened in Jerusalem. They got together every week. Now, we don't know if at this point they were meeting once on Sunday and they met all day, or if they still met twice and they met at night to eat. But Paul says, when you gather together and you celebrate this feast, he says, the problem is you have people that are selfish, they're there for themselves. Now, what would happen is this is a description of a church potluck. So it's biblical to have church dinners, okay? So I'm excited about that because we need to keep doing that. Hopefully, we can do that soon. But it's biblical to have church dinners. And Paul says, here's what's happening. The rich people have a lot of food to bring, and they have really good food to bring, and they would bring it. And the poor people would bring whatever they had, which could be just a little bit or in some cases, nothing at all. But when you come together in this unifying meal under in which you're going to celebrate the unifying of Christ Jesus through his blood and through his death on the cross, everybody gets to eat to their fill. Now we've experienced that here. okay? I, I have this to show it over the past year and a half that we've been here. I think I put on almost 20 pounds, and I tell people it's the church dinners, okay? Man, we go out of here, and I can hardly walk sometimes. The food is good. That's the situation. There's lots of food. There's really good food because the people who can bring a lot and bring good food do, and then everybody gets to share. That's how it's supposed to work. Now, that's just a symbol of how the Christian life is supposed to work all together, okay? When the Bible tells us that they had all things in common, it's basically... You know, everything you own really is nothing more than a way to bless somebody else. They were practicing that in these meals. The church at Corinth wasn't. What was happening is the people who were rich and who had a lot of money and food, they would get there first, and then they would eat all their food. And then the poor people would start coming in afterwards, and there was nothing left. Rich people were full. They were drunk in some cases, and there was no food left for the poor people. And so they would get nothing And then they would join together as a church and try to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That was a problem. Okay? Imagine if you were one of the poor people coming in and there was no food left for you. That may be the only decent meal you get all week because that's what's provided through the church. And now the rich people in the church are causing this division by separating between rich and poor. And we deserve the food because we earned the money and it's our food. And so we're going to eat it and too bad for you. You wonder why there was problems with attitudes in the church at Corinth? Here's a great reason right here. Selfishness and pride. Okay, so this is the situation that we read about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There's people who are being selfish and ignoring and basically forgetting about, not caring about, other people in the church. This is all about me. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm going to eat what I want. I'm going to go first. I don't care what everybody else gets. That was the attitude of many people in the Corinthian church. And then, of course, the people who didn't get any are now angry at the people who ate all the food. So you walk into, if you were to come after the dinner just for the Lord's Supper, imagine the atmosphere in the church at that time. There's no way you could worship God because everybody's upset, everybody's selfish, everybody's prideful, everybody's angry. How do you worship the Lord with that kind of attitude? All right? So he corrects them here, and he's saying this is supposed to be a celebration of the union and unity of believers in Christ, and yet you're making it a cause for division. It's totally opposite of what it's supposed to be. And so what that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. People, instead of encouraging and edifying each other, were offending each other every time they got together. And that's why he says right at the beginning, I don't praise you in this. You're not coming together for good. You're not even celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is what unifies and you guys are all divided. And so he gives this warning. Go down to verse 27. We've looked at the substance. He says, this is how you should do it in the verses that we read earlier in 23 to 26. But he goes on in verse 27. He says, here's the warning. Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So Paul says, you're coming to the table of the Lord unworthily. And if you partake of this, trying to worship God with a bad attitude and with pride and sin in your heart, you are not worthy to partake of these elements because you are not unified. You are divided. And it's your problem. These, this word unworthily means those who are not worthy. And what Paul's talking about is either people who were believers— at least in their profession, but were living and acting like heathens, or they were truly heathens. Okay? They weren't saved. So either they were acting as if they weren't saved, void of the love of Christ, or they truly weren't saved. And in probably the cases, most of them may not have been saved. So Paul says in verse 28, let a man examine himself. So he's warning them, he's saying, You before you come. To worship the Lord. Look at yourself. Look at your own heart. Look at the problems that you have caused because of your wrong attitude. And he's warning them. He says, if you don't take care of that first, before you come before the table of the Lord, then God may judge you. He goes on in verse 29. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh, Damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And he goes in verse 30 For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. So, what he's saying is, you've defiled the worship of God, specifically gathering at the Lord's table with this sin in your life, and God has allowed you and judged you with sickness and, in some cases, death. Now, that's serious. And we may think, well, you know what, it's not a big deal. No, it is a big deal. To come before the holy God in worship, to remember the blood and body that was broken, that was shed on the cross for us because of these kinds of very sins, and then to bring these sins in our hearts while we try to worship God, literally is blasphemy before God. And Paul says, God's going to judge you. God may judge you. He says, there are people in the Church at Corinth, there were people who had gotten sick because of this, and some who had died. God had just taken them off the earth because he was done with them. So this is serious. It's a serious warning. And when you have the consequences of participating in an unworthy state are serious before God. So we can't take this lightly. We always... Have a time. And I say to everybody, and we will do this today before we partake, let's take a minute. If you have something that you know is not right before God or right with another person, if you have a grudge, if you have some kind of ill feelings, you need to take care of it before you partake. Now is the time to do that. And the reason we do that is for this very reason here. Because if we come in worship, remembering our unity in Christ, But being divided because of our wrong attitudes, then we are blaspheming God in our worship. And God says, I will judge you. I will chastise you. Go on in verse 31 for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Check yourselves, examine yourselves, be truthful about your own heart before God. Are you the one causing division? Are you the one holding a grudge? Are you the one that wants your own way? Are you the one that is perpetuating these problems and the wrong attitudes? Paul says, examine yourself. Judge yourself. Because if you judge yourself, then you won't be judged. You will take care of those things before you come to worship. But verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. God will judge us. Now, I'm not saying if we're saved that he's going to send us to hell, but God will judge our sin, and he will chasten us. Sometimes it looks like sickness, and sometimes it looks like death. Now, I've told you this story before. When we were in New Hampshire, we had a young couple that came and joined our church. He was just getting in the military. They had only been married about six months and they joined our church they seemed like they were excited about god and he went into the military and within weeks we found out he was having an affair and the church tried to go to him the pastor went to him people in the church went to him and begged him to repent and make things right he claimed he was a christian i can't doubt that but he would not repent he would not talk to anybody in the church and he would not return to his wife He went off for basic training, and in basic training they have what's called the dunk tank. Basically it's an underwater test where you hold your breath and tread water, etc. The man died in the dunk tank. That had never happened before in basic training. God judged him, I believe, because of his sin. So the judgment of God is a serious thing. And God is deadly serious about how we would worship him, and that's why it's so important for us to examine our hearts before him before we come and worship, and specifically in this area of partaking of the Lord's Supper together. God's chastisement was upon these people because of how they were sinning and how they treated each other. So Paul finishes this, command, this, this passage with a command in verse 33. He says, Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, wait for one another. Do it together. Those of you who get there first, who have the most food, wait for everybody else. Prefer others before yourself, right? That's the principle of love. In verse 34, if any man hunger, go eat at home so that you don't come together into condemnation and the rest will I set in order when I come. So Paul's very serious about this warning he gives to the Corinthians. And this is not just for the Corinthians, it's for all of us. So here's some lessons we can get out of this. Number one, our worship is not about what we get out of it. Our church dinners are not about what we get out of it. The best blessing of a church dinner is being able to share with other people who may not have what we have. It's more blessed to give than to receive, right? So our worship is not what we get out of it. It's not about what I can gain by going to church or about what people can do for me at church or even for what God can do for me while I'm at church It's about giving. That's the definition of worship. Therefore, you can't worship in a spirit of pride and selfishness. And when we engage in worship, and specifically the Lord's Supper, we have to remember that it's what God has done to bring us together in unity. So if there's anything that is causing problems in that unity, that has to be taken care of before we worship. So Christianity... And, and remembering what Christ did for us at the Lord's Supper is about our absolute dependency upon Christ and about our codependency upon each other. No man can live the Christian life all by himself. can't happen. We're all part of the same body. And so we must work together to help each other. And as we work together to help each other, then we all are helped and encouraged. That's the principle of love. So let me conclude with this application, okay? Obviously, what we see here is that it teaches us much about how we worship God when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as we did this morning. But I want to give you, as we close, a specific application that can be applied today in our lives. Now, I'm not saying that we have a problem in our church, and I don't know of any problems in our church, and I'm thankful to the Lord for that, okay? I hope it stays that way. We are human beings. I know there's problems that arise, but hopefully we take care of them in a time frame that is right. So we're not looking at a problem. What we're facing, though, is a situation that could become a problem. And so I'm going to be very specific in how we apply this principle today because we are about to worship the Lord in in the Lord's Supper. Okay? The issue is about masks and social distancing. And you go, well, how is mask and social distancing apply to the Lord's Supper? I'll tell you why. Because many different people have many different opinions about wearing masks and about social distancing. Okay? And we can let those differences in our opinions cause division within the body of Christ. If we want to. If we have let those opinions about wearing masks cause division between us, and we participate in the Lord's Supper, then we are guilty of eating and drinking unworthily. Okay? I'm not exaggerating this. I'm giving you the application because it's exactly the same attitude that Paul was dealing with in Corinth. I don't want these kinds of issues to cause division in our church because that's exactly what Satan wants for us to tear each other apart and to tear this church apart. Satan doesn't need outside influences to tear church apart. All he needs to do is agitate Christians against each other within the church, and they'll do his job for him. So we need to avoid, as much as possible, any kind of division, and specifically in this area of mask wearing. Now, I'm going to give you some facts about this, and these are all researched, okay, as far as us wearing masks in the church. Number one, Governor Wolf gave us a restriction to wear masks and to social distance, but that does not apply to churches specifically. If you read, I've, I've spent the time, I read his entire order and all the revisions of it. He never mentions churches once specifically in that recommendation or in that mandate, okay? So churches are not governed by that mandate specifically. He also said in a news conference and alluded to the fact that it would be unconstitutional for him to put restrictions on a church because of the First Amendment. Now, I'm not trying to get political. I'm just telling you the facts, Okay. So at this point, houses of religion and churches are free to operate as they see fit, even in this situation, with recommendations about how to be safe from the governor. Second, there are differing opinions about whether masks are safe or not safe, or whether they will accomplish what everybody says they will accomplish. Okay? You can find reports that tell us that any masks that basically are available to the public, the mesh is not small enough to catch viruses. The virus is so small, it goes right through it, okay? And there's scientific evidence to prove that. The CDC, and this is where I looked for the information, has implied that the virus is mainly airborne, and I'm going to quote, transmitted directly through respiratory droplets emitted during coughing, sneezing, and talking. Spread is more likely when people are in close contact with one another within about six feet, okay? So there's the basis for social distancing. The six feet, you're less likely, in the presence of someone else, to catch their germs if you're six feet away. But we have to remember that just because someone who was six feet away and then vacates that area and then we walk directly into that, it doesn't mean the virus exits that area. So six feet is a recommendation, okay? It it may help us. And the words that the CDC uses, and again I'm quoting, masks and social distancing may slow the spread of the virus and help people who may have the virus and do not know it from transmitting it to others. So there's not a definite. It's a may, it's a recommendation. This is what basically all of our our media and our leaders are going by, these recommendations, okay? Third, whatever the media may say, you can look up information if you want to. You can find double-blind tests that disprove the, the usefulness of masks. Some that say wearing masks is actually more dangerous to you. Some that say, well, they do work some, but they don't work all the way. Okay, there's a lot of information out there is what I'm trying to tell you, okay? The point is this. What's the connection between masks and social distancing with the Lord's Supper? What we have chosen to do as a church is this. Obviously, we don't want to endanger anybody as they come to worship the Lord together. We want to edify. We want to build up, and we want to keep everybody safe, okay? Okay? So we have decided as the leadership of the church that recommending these practices of wearing masks when you come in and when you leave, especially when you're in close contact with other people, that, and, and then the social distancing as well, that will provide a safe environment so that we can meet together and provide the, the lowest risk, according to the recommendations. We are not mandating that, and we will not enforce that and cause anybody who doesn't wear a mask or anybody who violates in our minds that standard to not be able to enter church and not be able to worship that with us. If we did that, if we enforced this mask wearing and social distancing, basically it would be the same as me saying, you know what, if the men are going to come in and worship, you have to wear a suit and tie, and the women have to wear dresses and closed-toed shoes and have your hair up and covered. That's a legalistic standard, okay? We are going by men's wisdom here. There's no mandate in Scripture about how to do this or how not to do this except this one principle, Love one another. Love one another. Okay? We have decided as church leadership, the pastor and the board, that we are recommending these practices because it's a step to try to keep everybody safe. We are not doing it as a response to the mandate by the governor because it doesn't apply to us. So, With that recommendation, then, again, we're not going to enforce that or force people to comply. And this brings us to the spiritual application. We are a church, a spiritual entity first, a body, a living organism in Christ. That's the most important thing about when we gather together. As such, there, we are first and foremost subject to follow God's laws as our sole authority for faith and practice. And although we are to submit ourselves to every authority of man, as First Peter 2.13 tells us, that authority, as far as the mask mandate, does not apply to churches in the state of Pennsylvania. That's very clear if you do the research. For us, um, then, the issue here is not about what any of us think about masks and social distancing, whether we should or whether we shouldn't. The issue here is about love and Christian liberty. First, we as Christians and as a church, we have the liberty to decide as we gather together how we will respond to those recommendations and what actions we will take as individuals. Okay? You have the choice to wear a mask or not wear a mask. No one is going to persecute you because you don't wear a mask or don't social distance. If we are to practice love, as Christ demonstrated in his life, we will choose to do those things that are best for everyone else around us. That means thinking of others first, not my Christian liberty first. And that's clear. We talked about Christian liberty a year ago. And that was the main principle in Paul's exposition on Christian liberty is, you have all these freedoms, but knowledge puffeth up, and pride does not exhibit love. Love is more important than what we're free to do. So with that, then, If we are to practice love as Christ demonstrated his life, we will choose to do those things that are best for everyone else around us, regardless of what our personal opinion is on the matter. Thirdly, if we truly love each other as we should, we will not get offended when someone violates that supposed standard or expectation that we have put on them because they're not wearing a mask. If we do get offended, it's our problem, not theirs. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8 says and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves above all things have fervent love among yourselves because charity or love covers a multitude of sins that means that we can forgive and love each other and overlook those who violate the supposed standard that everyone should follow in our minds so here's the spiritual application And here's how I expect us to behave in the church of God. We will always strive to treat each other with love, even when we don't agree about something. And this mask is a great example of where we could have division. Okay, I'm not saying we have it. I don't know of any problems in our church as far as that's concerned but I've read articles about churches that are literally splitting and having issues because of the mask-wearing or not mask-wearing. If you go out in our society, people have been persecuted, have been attacked, and some have been shot because they didn't have a mask on, okay? That's a problem. And if that's an attitude of some of us in the church, that's a problem. So we will, never, we will always strive to treat each other with love even when we don't agree about this. We will never get personally offended when someone does not live up to our expectations for their behavior, and we will prevent everything that we can do to prevent division and animosity from dividing this church because of a difference about anything, specifically in this case about mask wearing and social distancing. Now, you are free to have your opinion. You are free to do your own research and to come up with your own conclusions, but I will not allow it to divide this church. Okay, And that's a warning from Paul, not from me, because this is where it applies. If I put myself above everybody else in the church and what I think becomes the standard, and I'm going to hold everybody else to that, and if they don't follow my recommendations and follow what I think is best, then I'm going to be upset with them. That's exactly what Paul was condemning in the Corinthian church, and it's exactly what he's condemning in our churches today. So if you have a problem with someone not wearing a mask, go to them in love and ask them why they don't wear a mask. Some people have legitimate reasons. Okay. If you are mad or upset about someone who doesn't wear a mask, then you are part of the problem. Because you're judging other people, and you're not overlooking their supposed sin in love. If you choose to stay home because you're upset that people are not wearing masks all the time, then you are part of the problem. If you choose to stay home, there's lots of good reasons why people need to stay home, okay? I'm not condemning staying home. There's valid reasons, but if the only reason that keeps you out of church is because you're upset about what somebody else in the church is doing, that's the wrong reason to stay home, and the problem is with you. If you judge people for staying home regardless of their reasons, you are the problem because now you're judging their motives, and that's not our job. If you choose not to wear a mask only because you refuse to be a sheep of the government and you don't care how you might offend or affect other people, then you are the problem. Because you're using your Christian liberty for your own good instead of for the good of others. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm, I'm giving you this in love because I want to prevent, at all costs, divisions like we see in the church at Corinth from happening in this church. And this issue has the potential to become that. And I'm giving you the foundation from which we need to operate to prevent that. Okay? So the most important part of all of this, if you're the one who's going to make an issue out of this either way so that it causes offense and division in the church, or even if you go away mad or harbor that bitterness in your heart because of somebody else's actions, you are the church member that Paul's talking to in First Corinthians 11. Now, why did I say all this? Because I hope with all my heart that this is not the case in our church. I hope that we truly can tolerate, can love, can show love to one another, even in our attitudes that we keep inside and don't speak out loud, because we are about to worship the Lord and partake in the Lord's Supper. And if you come to the table of the Lord With that attitude, you are eating and drinking unworthily. That's the warning. And as I said, it's a serious warning. We are blaspheming the God that we say we worship when we are causing division because of our attitude when we are remembering the unity that we have in Christ in this practice. Okay? So I beseech and beg all of you listening today, whether you're here or whether you hear me online, whether you hear this after the fact, live together and worship together in love. That's what Paul was admonishing the Corinthians to do. Remember that love is the basis of how we treat each other and how we worship, okay? Don't look for reasons to get offended. Don't live so as to offend people. Live embracing God's love and forgiveness as the rule of your life and the rule of your worship, And if there's a problem in your attitude towards someone else in the church or with somebody else outside the church, you need to make it right today before you partake of the Lord's Supper. Otherwise, you literally are coming to the Lord's table unworthily. And that's not my judgment. That's what Paul says in Scripture. Okay? So I'm just giving you the Scripture as the warning. And that's why Paul says, examine yourself. God will show you if you have a problem in your heart. If there is an attitude that shouldn't be there. Or something that is causing bitterness against somebody else. You need to make it right before you partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, that's the best way I know from Scripture to maintain real unity in the church. Right? I mean, that's God's prescription for it. So, as we partake of the Lord's Supper then, we are going to do what we always do and take a minute or two of silent prayer, and this is your opportunity to go before God and say, okay, Lord, please show me if there's bitterness in my heart. If I have a problem, if I'm offending someone else, or if I'm offended by someone else, if I'm not worthy to come before you right now in worship, let's make it right. That's what this time is for. And if you need to get up and go to somebody, go ahead and do it because if it's not right with them it's not right with God okay